0: Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell.
1: And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life. In that order.
0: That's absolutely right.
1: Uh, Andy, I hear you're busy these days.
0: Yeah, you know, October is uh, one of the few times Orlando gets really slammed with production work, which, you know, good problems to have and all. But I went from a summer of just reading comic books and not doing much of anything to... Oh my god, it's four already. Let's, let's, okay, let's go. I've got like eight things I still need to do.
1: Oh, sweetie. (laughs) I'm so sorry.
0: It's okay, man. Like I said, good problems. I I prefer this to the dead time, so...
1: See, I'm the opposite. Like, I would so much rather just have nothing to do at all than I can just, like, work on my own crap and then... (laughs) When things are busy, I'm just kind of frenetic and exhausted and feel like, I don't know. I I would so much rather have have a ton of downtime and just go, all right, well, I have downtime. I can do my own shit now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know what I actually have realized? I'm okay when it's absolutely dead so I can work on my own stuff, like start a podcast with my friend. Um, and I'm okay when it's been super busy because I sort of, like, get into the zone and get into the grind. I hate the transition mm-hmm. between the two. I hate when it's been uh, dead and all of a sudden you're busy and vice versa. Okay. So you have been on vacation since last we spoke.
1: Uh, I have been on – I did take a trip. Uh, so I went out – I went up to New York, yeah. and you know that was that was my birthday gift from Stephanie. Uh, we hung out in Brooklyn a whole hell of a lot because I'd never spent any significant amount of time in Brooklyn. I think I mentioned on an older episode that like I was planning on going to a bunch of like I, I had discovered that there were these Asian Mexican fusion restaurants. Great. I didn't find any of them. Ah. Brooklyn, it tur- Brooklyn. It turns out, uh, and no one ever talks about this. Brooklyn's fucking huge, guys. Like, Brooklyn is enormous and kind of hard to get around. Like, if you're taking the subways, a lot of the time you got to take a train into Manhattan just to change trains to get back into Brooklyn. Mm. And it is weird. But no, we still had a great time. Like, I got to see a couple of friends. I got to visit Coney Island, which I'd never done before. And it was interesting. It was closed for the most part, but... We still got to, like, walk around and check stuff out. We had some Manhattan times, and I'm just kind of reminded, okay, this is a place that I love absolutely... And it's funny. The older I get, the more I'm, like, okay with the fact that I don't live in New York (laughs) or have never lived in New York and probably never will. Like, there was definitely a time in my life where I was like, I want to live here. This is the only place I want to live. And now I'm kind of like... Uh, it's probably pretty okay that I don't. Like,
0: <laughs> now, do you think New York specifically or just incredibly dense metropolitan areas in general?
1: Um, I think, honestly, like dense metropolitan areas in general. Like I think about other cities in the area or other other large cities where we could, you know, maybe move and do all right. You know, Nashville's not that far away right. from where we are. And I've loved Nashville when we visited. I thought it was so cool. But here's the thing: if we lived in Nashville, we would not live in downtown Nashville. <laughs> no, we. Yeah, we'd probably live somewhere. Not even if it's not like us. Like, not. A, I'm not saying suburbs, but just not in the main metropolitan area, because. Eh, It's like you you have to contend with the existence of kind of that apartment style living. Never mind that. it okay, fair enough. It's the most like efficient form of living. But you have to deal with neighbors on all sides with walk ups, not really having a ton of space. I, I don't know. There's the more time I spend where I am the more inclined I am to kind of see those metropolitan areas as places to visit and maybe places to hang out in. But I don't think I'd want to say that. Sure,
0: sure. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You either have that vibe or you don't. and It's not a right or wrong sort of thing. Yeah, you know, it's just weird
1: that it's like my tastes have shifted over the years. Maybe I'm, t- I'm 29 now, and I think I'm finally slowing down. <laughs>
0: Well, I wasn't gonna put it that way, but yeah, maybe you know. Oh sure, yeah,
1: no, I'm I'm 29. I'm I'm three quarters of the way dead, Andrew.
0: Like this is true. Um, yeah, I followed your guys's uh, Twitter feeds while you were there religiously, and my highlight of your trip is the two of you talking about how navigating the New York subway system is like a scavenger hunt, except it smells like pee.
1: <laughs> that was that was Stephanie's statement on it. Yes, that it's. It was it was exciting. It was fun. We got lost, like, twice. Like, we got on trains in the wrong direction. Oh, stereotype to break. On no fewer than two occasions, we had random, like, clearly have been living here for years, New Yorkers come up to us and ask us, hi, you guys look like you need a little help. Do you know, do, do you need some help with finding where you're going? Like, they were super sweet Aww. and super kind and yes, in a place like New York, there are tons of people who all have places to be and can sometimes be a little brusque or can sometimes not think about space too much or, or rather they know the space that they inhabit and if you are not considerate of space around you, you're an asshole. But, like, there are a lot of people who are very kind and willing to come up to you and just help out because they can see that you're lost and they can see that you need a little assistance. And, yeah, we, we don't typically think of that when it comes to major metropolitan areas, especially in the Northeast, but
0: oh. people were super nice. That's that's yeah. absolutely wonderful. That's what we need nowadays, more of that.
1: Yes, more 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 kind New Yorkers who... Just kind of sweet and nice and and happy to be there and and okay with your being there.
0: Fuck you, my friend. Enjoy your day. Indeed, my man. Well, awesome. Yeah. So, what are we talking about?
1: Uh, well, a uh, quick format disclosure because it's been brought to our attention that we t- very often do not actually disclose the format of this show, folks. This is love-hate relationship. Uh, we do three segments for each of these episodes. First off, uh, one of us brings a topic of something we love. Then the other of us brings a topic of something we hate. We trade those off. And then at the end, we take a relationship question from uh, one of you, our lovely audience. And we try and give you the very best, tremendously unqualified, but tremendously well-meaning advice we possibly can.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it.
1: I I do my best. Um okay, so it is my turn to talk love. So Andrew, I I thought this would be fun to do a little bit of a challenge. Okay. So so those of you who read the title to this you'll it it shouldn't be a surprise. My love for this episode is The Doors, the 60s psychedelic rock band who uh, most people probably know for songs like Break On Through, yeah. Light My Fire, Touch Me, uh, Roadhouse Blues, etc. But I want to do something a little bit different with this discussion. So, following this disclaimer right here, Andy, I ask you, and I will do my best to do the same thing. I want to have a discussion about the doors where, at least until the very end, we don't name or mention, or allude to lead singer Jim Morrison any more than we have to. Any
0: more than you just You did. accept. Okay.
1: Yep. Yep. Any, uh, any, any objections to that?
0: Uh, is, is Colin him Val Kilmer a cop-out? <laughs>
1: uh, yes. Okay. Although, it's going um, you know... to
0: be harder than I thought then. <laughs> up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A Picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are. Uh,
1: We'll see, we'll see. I I do have in my notes a couple of, you know, just mentions where I I make a comment or two, where I have to, because I'll be talking about composition. But I want to spend as much of my time as possible talking about the other three members of the band. Okay. So, Andy, you ready to go?
0: Absolutely. Go for it. All
1: right. So, some basic background. The Doors formed in 1965, featuring keyboardist Ray Manzarek, a friend of his from his meditation classes, uh, drummer John Densmore, guitarist Robbie Krieger, and some other dude who Manzarek went to film school with. Following stints as the house band for both the London Fog and the Whiskey A Go Go in LA, where that other dude got them fired for drunkenly screaming fuck words at the audience, they signed with Elektra Records in 1966 and would go on to release eight albums over the next five years seven of which made the Billboard top ten and went at least platinum. Uh, And then finally, uh, after What's-His-Ass stupidly died in Paris in 1971, Krieger and Manzarek shared lead vocals on two additional very underrated albums before the lineup officially disbanded in 1973. Krieger and Manzarek later reformed with Densmore choosing to sit out, uh, and there was a legal battle over the name. You might have seen stories uh maybe 10 10 or 12 years ago for the doors of the 21st centuries with uh ian asbury from the cult doing a lot of the vocal duty yeah there was some disputes there they went on to play as riders on the storm uh, and later krieger manzarek but afterwards all of them basically went on to quiet but moderately successful solo careers so there's your background on the doors before we get into this discussion now what were you going to say andy
0: well so i want to go back and and you touched on um putting out eight albums over over five years and i'm genuinely curious but i feel like that's a lot right that is that is a that is such a impressive output or or was it not and everyone was doing that back then and i and and the doors just stuck around in my memory
1: you know it is funny because nowadays we think about it it's uh, i think most of the music acts i'm familiar with they do an album every you know once a year is considered pretty decent yeah if they do if they i spend a lot of time following hip-hop acts and a lot of them will do like album, and then uh, like maybe a couple of mixtapes, which are just either, which are usually a couple of alternate versions of a few songs, and then a few like B-side tracks. If you spent a lot of time listening to deep cut albums from alternative bands back in the 90s, it was pretty normal to do like LP and an EP. You know, they'd have the additional thing that was like another four tracks, and it would kind of be associated with the album. But when you get to the 60s, or really like that whole 50s, 60s, 70s era, it was not unusual for a band to do maybe two albums in one year like um i know black sabbath they released their first two albums both in 1970 within about seven months of each other i'm pretty sure the first cup led zeppelin did their first like four albums i think in about two years two years three years something like that and you know think about the beatles the beatles did i think in an eight-year period i think they did 10 albums 11 albums so not quite once a year but a little more frequently than that
0: sure sure i just it's so interesting i because i can't put myself in that mindset of what that was like for bands to be producing producing music quicker but also there's no social media and it's so much harder for people to get the word out but i I, I guess those those two things go hand in hand bands had to have what would be perceived now as a increased output so they could stay more relevant sure and
1: i mean i think about take looking specifically at the doors yeah um before their first album came out they had spent basically that year coming together and kind of crafting a lot of these songs. When they did those club gigs, they basically did uh, like a series of some covers and then also uh, their own originals. And they just basically spent a year compiling music and those first two Doors albums were all songs that had been written kind of in that first year. Uh, And even the third album, uh, which I want to say that was Soft Parade, um. Yeah But their, even that third album Still, I think maybe half of it Was all songs that they had written That one year So they had this large Repertoire of Covers and reworked covers And uh And originals Basically two and a half albums worth Before they were even signed
0: That makes a lot more sense then But yeah, that's, I mean People our age and younger are going to be less familiar with the band with the group i have to admit i um i really didn't listen to the doors very much at all until high school and just sort of stumbled upon the initial album and went oh my god what have i been missing and got myself caught up but their impact on rock and on the uh on on the California 60s, 70s rock culture at the time, I really think can't be understated. They're, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're one of the bands that, like, made Whiskey-A-Go-Go famous.
1: Yes, so in the 80s, when all the hair metal bands were kind of really zeroed in on the Sunset Strip, the, a lot of them have talked about this in interviews since, you know, the big goal, the big thing that they all wanted was to headline a night at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go because that was where the Doors had played, very famously. And and the A&R people would basically just go to the headline shows at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go and that's where they would go and sign Motley Crue or Poison or Cinderella or Faster Pussycat or any of those bands.
0: Yeah, so so uh, you know they're 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 one of the pillars. They're they maybe a little less well known, maybe a little dusty to today's sensibility, but you know, it's not uh inaccurate to call them one of the pillars of rock and roll. I don't think.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're and they're always up there in those discussions with the Hendrix Experience, with Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh Jefferson Airplane, a lot of those kind of very those post Beatles even though the Beatles were still playing at the time but those kind of post Beatles post British invasion psychedelic acts yeah the doors are always featured really really heavily in there and i think that that's valid you know they the when i think about where the doors exist in kind of this realm of music and this period of time it setting aside the um, implications that what's his face uh, completely everyone thinks about in terms of you know the, their lyrics and the quote unquote tragedy of death or whatever. I think about their sound and yeah. and this is and this is something I really wanted to key in on is you know when you think about psychedelic sounds, most people will. Tune over to uh, kind of like maybe the Grateful Dead influence—that weird uh, kind of evocative, experimental electric guitar playing, which Robbie Krieger was perfectly capable of doing. But also that weird synth line, like this. This was before the '80s kind of turned synthesizers into a mainstay instrument.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: you had this uh, kind of noodly, very soloistic organ style. That would later kind of get refocused as bands like Deep Purple came out, uh, and and the keyboard kind of became a heavier sound. What Manzarek did with the keyboards and the Doors was he basically took the shit that he learned playing organs in churches and built this like high psychedelic, almost jazzish, but very unique solo style and riff style with the keyboards. And when that going back and forward with the guitar that Krieger would play created this really weird, unique sound that I don't know any, I don't know any other bands that sound like the doors. It's one of the things that I love about them.
0: Yeah, I don't either. I mean, you think about just the, uh, the opening notes to light my fire, the sort of it, it, it it's almost carousel-esque yes. and yes you know i think i i think i remember watching like a, a vh1 special on them or, or or on the on the initial album or something and basically it was described that krieger was basically keeping beat with the guitar instead of, um, Densmore, um, mm-hmm. with the Flamingo guitar influences and keeping, flamingo. keeping beat that way. And, you know, um, Manzarek on the organ was basically, you, you've said it better, but basically manning the line So taking these, taking these things that instruments do, but doing them with different instruments. Yeah. That's something that's unique. That's something I haven't seen other people really try to do. And that's something that I help makes their sound so incredible.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I I put down notes specifically on light, my fire because um, it's by no stretch of the imagination. Is it my favorite Doors song, but I think it's a really interesting song to kind of get into their process because um, that song was initially written by Krieger, uh, and it, this is the part where if you watch the Doors, the Oliver Stone movie, like that scene where they're in a beach house and Robbie yeah. Krieger is like, I, "I wrote a song, guys," and he takes out his like notebook paper and he starts playing this like folky, know that it would be untrue, know that I would be alive, like that. That was how "Light My Fire" was originally conceived. Krieger had written it as kind of like this folksy song. They said that it kind of sounded like The Birds. Very, very harmonious and nice. And then what the band did, and this is how they did most of their songs, was they took it and they started messing around with it and playing through it in different ways. So you had Krieger, who, by the way, can play blues, can play rock can play r&b can play flamenco can play classical spanish guitar can play all of these styles and does them all really well highly recommend if you can look up any of robbie krieger's solo stuff from like years after the doors he has some of the best jazz guitar playing like period but um so you have this folksy song you get densmore on it and densmore decides is playing around with these different styles and then he settles in on a bossa nova beat which is brazilian samba music and he's like i kind of like this i kind of like this with uh with with the bossa nova let me play this bossa nova beat over it and it was really weird for that song at first but it clicked it worked really really stupidly well yeah and then and 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 with that, you know, Krieger started adjusting his guitar playing, especially because he uh, decided to kind of give it a little bit more of a straight forward edge, but also he was using these like flamenco style chord progressions. And then Manzarek just kind of fiddling around comes up with that opening riff and it all comes together into this really different kind of weird song, but it works so well for what it is.
0: Yeah, and then you got you know you've basically got these three musical geniuses who are experimenting in a way that just totally works. Plus, their homeless friend who uh, you know starts screaming his own lyrics off the top of his head.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically, like uh, the second the second verse was what was what Krieger did not write, and it was like there should be a love part, but there should also be a death part, and it's like. Sure, whatever. Who cares? But <laughs> the point is, you know, Light My, Light My Fire was their first big hit. And it came together because they blended all of these weird, disparate influences. And if you go through their catalog, the shit that they're able to come up with, you get a song like Love Street, right. which is kind of this very boppy, acoustic kind of deal. Um, but then you also get Roadhouse Blues, which is a hard blues like straightforward, dirty ass song and it's fantastic. And they and they can do that naturally. They they'll they'll take Bertok Brecht's Alabama song. Like that is a lot of people don't realize Alabama song, like that was originally from a Burtock Brecht musical, uh, which Manzarek just had like a copy of in his record collection and they were all sitting around listening to it and they decided, hey, what if we turn this into like some weird kind of bouncy rock song with funky percussion aspects and that song is as a reimagined brecht song is so weird but so perfect to that band so much so that so many people don't realize that it's even a cover you
0: know no absolutely i didn't know that until um we did some research on it and it you think about it and you're like okay yeah that makes that makes sense now that those are lyrics from a musical but but the the lyrics of the Doors discography as a whole are so whimsical and so bizarre and so poetic that you know at first glance it's like okay no this is just this is just how they do it
1: yeah so I for me when I when I originally started listening to The Doors, and this was probably... This is actually not that different from when you started. I, I listened to them maybe a little bit earlier, like late middle school. Hmm. Um, just as I was kind of starting to dig into all of that, you know, I I read uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive, which is a biography about what's his ass. Um, you know, I read that. I watched the Oliver Stone movie. I... Got all of their albums, and I listened to them through constantly and and I was very enamored with the lyrics and the singing and the vocal performance and It was only as I got older and maybe this is maybe, maybe the running theme of this discussion is coming away from kind of the weird hooks that yeah. get you when you're young and you start listening to this music, the hooks of these stories. You know we talked about tortured artists a while ago and this idea this narrative that we have coming away from that and learning to appreciate the music as music and it was really it was really after i started playing guitar that i i picked up i actually ironically uh andrew when i was a senior in high school uh and you were a sophomore we took a trip to new york that's true uh, And while there, I went into a music shop, and I bought a book of Doors sheet music, which I still have. I still have this book. And I started studying this book to try and learn how to play Doors songs from sheet music. And A, it's incredibly difficult, because Krieger is a really brilliant guitarist whose stuff is not always terribly easy, but B, I... It gave me. It, it was sheet music for all instruments, you know. Huh, so yeah. I was looking at these drum parts. I was looking at the keyboard parts. I even looked at the bass parts, which is funny because um, the Doris didn't have a regular bassist. They their bassist was Ray Manzarek's left hand because he played a Fender Rhodes keyboard bass that he would play put on top of his regular organ. So his left hand would play a bass line, and his right hand would play the melody parts. That's that's how they did that. Uh, during all their live shows. Now, granted, in the studio recordings, they'd hire studio bassists because uh, the actual bass guitar just sounds better on record. But, like, that's how they played their live shows was Manzarek's left hand played the bass part. But it had bass music. It It had all of this. And I really started digging into a lot of these songs. And I realized, oh, my God, the sheer musicality of this band every member is, every member who plays an instrument plays that instrument so terrifyingly well just like so brilliantly right that that and it all blends together and it's and once again like this is a topic where i am angry that people don't give it more credit. That people don't notice it. That people that I can say Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger, and nobody knows who the fuck I'm talking about. When there are these brilliant music, Krieger, Krieger played all those songs without a pick. He did not. He did it all with his fingers. He played <laughs> every song throughout the course of the Doors' career without a pick.
0: I'm just imagining the rock hard, blistery, terrifying stumps that must have been on the end of his knuckles. <laughs> I'm
1: saying, and he and it's just, and he did it
0: because he was like,
1: yeah, I just, I, I wanted to see how much I could do without playing for the with a pick for some years, and sure. later he would go on to keep playing with it. He would play with a pick again later, and then not later, and like that's the the lunacy of that, you know. I. I <laughs> The solo on 5 to 1, playing that with just your fingertips. I've tried to to learn that solo multiple times. I can't play it with a pick. I can't play it without a pick. (laughs) I don't have the coordination to play it with my fingers, but I'm not fast enough with a pick to play it.
0: Yeah, I think for anyone who is particularly interested in the musicality and less in the cult of personality of the band. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that Manzarek and Krieger and Densmore deserve much, much, much higher praise than they get in the public eye. You know, it's unfortunate that they are not on a t-shirt and therefore not synonymous with the band like certain other people are.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's be fair. They're ugly. They are three ugly men. Uh, <laughs> they are um, And also, you know, it just I don't know, man I, When I think about a lot of these bands Especially of the era, you know We don't do this with the Beatles, you know Sure, everyone knows that John and Paul Were some of the better musicians uh, Or rather the better songwriters Sure um, George Harrison had he been in any other band other than the Beatles would have been the head songwriter, but he was in a band with Paul McCartney and John Lennon. So he got screwed there. Um, uh, but he was wonderful. Yeah. And, and Ringo is Ringo. And Ringo
0: got to write Octopus's garden and, and Paul <laughs> hung it up on the refrigerator. Oh, <laughs> sweetie.
1: Well, also, I mean, well, I mean, he did a little, with a little help from my friends, which is a great song.
0: That's true. He you did.
1: Know? That's, that's, That's terrific. And he sang on a bunch of them and Ringo is legitimately a pretty decent musician, but we know all of their names, you know? Um but then think about the Rolling Stones. Most people know Mick and Keith.
0: Right. And I can't tell you the other members of the Rolling Stones, I'll I'll admit that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, some—that's the thing. Some people will remember that Ronnie Wood joined some years later. Brian Jones was their original lead guitarist. You know, people who were fans of them back in the day. You know, Jones died pretty early. Like I think he yeah. don't—he'd he'd only been with the band like eight or nine years. Granted, he played lead guitar in a lot of those early hits, so people remember him for that. So he gets that. And you know, Ronnie Wood was with the Faces, and before he was in the Faces with Rod Stewart. I can't tell you the name of a single other member of the Faces that isn't Ron Wood and Rod Stewart. Sorry, <laughs> um, yeah, that I, that exists. The Rolling Stones, you know, it's there's there's this cult of personality around them. It's 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 Joe Perry and Steven Tyler. Never mind yeah. the fact that the three other members of Aerosmith are really really crucial to that sound and have written so much to do with it. Yeah, it's
0: you think about you you think about most modern most famous rock bands um and you know it's interesting the doors started over 60 years ago and i think that is a factor to why the rest of the band is a little more obscure than the one guy but but this is going to become a prevalent thing as we continue to move forward in time you think about most famous rock bands, and there just must be something about humans that we want a frontman. We want nice. to focus our attention, and and usually, you know, this is a stereotype. Usually, it is the singer, but you know, um, Phil Collins in Genesis, Ozzy in Black Sabbath, Halford in uh, Judas Priest. Yeah. I can't tell you the guitarist of genesis or either guitarist judas priest i can't tell you tony iomi but that's because tony iomi was the heavy metal john lennon <laughs>
1: sure uh i'll tell you right now judas priest uh that's kk downing and glenn tipton i know that because i'm a guitarist sure that's always been a big factor i think about guitar players a lot. I also think about bassists, because I play bass, and I think about that a lot. Now, weirdly, though, think about Fall Out Boy. Patrick Stump, Pete Wentz. Do you remember the name of the other two? I think one of them's name is, like, Andy Troller.
0: Yeah, the drummer's name is Andy, Andy something. Uh, uh-huh. And no, I do not remember the lead guitarist of Fall Out Boy's name.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't recall. I just, for whatever reason, it just doesn't
0: yeah so there, there has to be there has to be something sociologically where we we encourage the cult of personality and we want to fixate on the one thing
1: no and i mean that's i think you're right and for for the doors it's easy to fixate on the one character in this if what they mean here's where i fall and maybe this is a you tell me if this is a cruel interpretation I think in my head, if you care about the music more than about who they are in the culture or what they represent or what they represented or what have you, then you think about who wrote that keyboard line. You think about who are the bleeding fingers behind this guitar riff. You think about that incredible... Like, fascinating drum beat. Like, you think about that stuff if the music is what matters to you. I don't think that many people have sat down and just are listening to Doors albums all the way through like I do. I think maybe they're doing that for their for other bands. But I, I don't think people remember the Doors for their music. I think people remember their Doors because such this asshole is in the 27th club (laughs) and yeah and there's this oliver stone movie and you know tragic and the death of the hippie movement and this is what it once represented like that's what they're thinking about well they're not thinking about keyboards and guitars I,
0: i agree and and you set up one half of this comparison people looking at the doors for the music and then you you do have the other half who are people who look back on the doors as symbols of the counterculture and ray Manzarek wasn't shouting fuck the pigs at the whiskey and robbie krieger wasn't pulling out his dick the other guy was and it it totally is easy to think about him for those facts and for the tragic artist facts you know his his, uh his face is on the t-shirt and that T-shirt, I think. I think we've. You know what? No, I'm not gonna break. I'm not gonna break a uh, rule here. <laughs> that T-shirt doesn't say so and so's name. It says The Doors.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're right. I and it's sad because you know, uh, look, Hendrix died right around the same time.
0: Yeah. Didn't Joplin as well?
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I I'm gonna zero in on Hendrix because Hendrix definitively was a musician, and he's remembered a lot as a musician. People recall him. There's a reason people still say, Jimi Hendrix is the greatest guitar player of all time. There's a reason you get these guitar ranking lists and people have to all but say Okay, we're, we're ranking the best guitarist of all time, not counting Hendrix, <laughs> because Hendrix is this given. I think there's an argument to be said that Hendrix may not be the best of all time, uh, depending on what metric you're looking at. If you're looking at pure technical skill, I might give that to Wes Montgomery, who's a jazz guitarist that most people haven't heard of, because hmm. uh, most people don't listen to jazz. And that's okay. I'm not telling all of you out there, you're bad people because you don't listen to jazz. I'm just telling you... In terms of sheer technical skill, there might be some guitarists who are better than Hendrix. If you want to call Hendrix the most creative or innovative guitarist of all time, okay, we might have a conversation there. Because he definitely did really interesting new shit. But here's the point. Hendrix, when somebody dies, tragically, immediately, they're... They, they, there's a chance that they can be canonized, especially when they're, you know, a big groundbreaking artist or represented something to someone. Hendrix was is remembered as a great musician because he was a great musician. Sure. And I'm gonna break now because I want to wrap this up. Okay. But I want to leave it with a thought. Jim Morrison is remembered for lyrics, some of which he did not write, because Krieger wrote half of Light My Fire yeah morrison only wrote the other half now granted morrison wrote a lot of the lyrics for the doors maybe maybe most of the lyrics but uh, he's he's kind of remembered for these lyrics he's not really remembered for his singing he's kind of remembered for this stage persona but a lot of that is wrapped up in the fact that he was you know drunkenly ranting yeah. at shows right. because he was, he was an alcoholic and he had a lot of struggles. And, you know, it, it's interesting to say, okay, he can be this really interesting example of a tragic figure in that regard. We can have that conversation, but Morrison doesn't deserve to be remembered as a musician, whereas Manzarek, who died a little over, about a decade ago, give or take, um, should be. But people don't remember his name. Krieger's still doing stuff, great stuff. Yeah. Uh, and and I know Densmore just started a jazz trio band uh, that just put out an album. I haven't checked it out yet, but I'm looking forward huh. to checking it out because he's great.
0: Yeah, and that's, I've loved
1: everything he's on.
0: That's that's especially fascinating because again, he started his career 60 years ago. I want to watch that. Yeah. I want to be. I want to check that out. Heck yeah.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I just it is legitimately sad to me that that we we will remember jim morrison for being for being this brilliant cultural figure i'm the f-ing lizard gang. but we can't remember the people who allowed him to call himself a musician because right. without them, without them he just did he just wasn't
0: without without the rest of the doors jim morrison is a failed film student living on a roof in california who probably, you know, goes to a bunch of counterculture rallies and writes some poetry and dies forgotten.
1: Yep, basically. So, I think you summed that up perfectly. So, well, that is I, that is my discussion of the Doors. Guys, I love the Doors. I highly encourage you listen to the Doors. Doors are a great band, but when you listen to them, listen to them. Don't just read the liner notes. Don't just focus in on the lyrics. Give some attention to the other instruments involved. And if you can, you know, support the other work that the others came out with. You know, Manzarek passed away not that long ago, but... um, I just pulled it up. Densmore's band is called Tribal Jazz. That's Tribal Jazz with no space in the middle, all one word. Uh, I highly recommend check them out. And Robbie Krieger's constantly doing stuff under multiple band names. So if you just Google his stuff, please uh, look him up. But he came out with a series of really interesting guitar-only albums over the last few years, and he is great. So check out his work
0: as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be checking out Tribal Jazz. And I think it, it can go for a lot of bands that you know you want to actually give the credit where it's due and not just get sucked into the cult of personality. But especially for the Doors, and and I quite love Jim Morrison. I love his singing. I love that drank a bottle of Jack horse scream. <laughs> but you know, okay. to each their own. I I also love. The musicality and just the brilliance of Manzarek and Krieger and Densmore, and so I think everyone else deserves to at least acknowledge them as well. Cool. Good so note to end on. Let's go from a band of the counterculture to the culture that should be countered, because this is this is kind of a weird one. These these our love and our hates are not uh, really related at all. But I,
1: I think that's that's the best way to do it.
0: Oh, good, 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 good. So all of you listening, uh, if you haven't turned off the podcast at this point because you find it hard to care about this next part, uh, I hate the NCAA, <laughs> and we're going to talk about why. All right, this should be fun. So for those who, like, like, I'm, I'm a very contextually sporty person. You, Alex, are not a very sporty person. Um, mm, nope. I think... Uh most of the people that I know for a fact are listening to this aren't necessarily sporty people, so I'm gonna go ahead and say, you know, I'm gonna sum up what is the NCAA. And there's two answers. There is the NCAA's answer, which you can actually find on their website, classifying them as a member-led organization dedicated to the well-being and lifelong success of college athletes the association shares a belief and a commitment to core values like integrity academic excellence sportsmanship inclusivity and then there is the real answer or at least the more cynical answer my answer Uh, the ncaa is basically a modern day cabal of rich old 1% mummies um, directly profiteering off of college teenage athletes, uh, manipulating the collegiate sports system and bouncing around between various different lawsuits and scandals. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle of those two statements, but basically they are the organization that exists to, make college football structured and not just college football but everyone thinks of college football to make most college sports structured and properly balanced and i i I can't even get through this they're they're there to make money for themselves and they figured out college sports are a way to do it um the ncaa was actually founded way back in 1905 by president theodore roosevelt ah yes
1: making his second appearance on making his
0: second appearance that's that's teddy two um i think nixon two and everyone else zero (laughs) Uh. okay so uh it was founded by theodore roosevelt back in 1905 and it wasn't founded as a um profiteering venture that it became it, it, it was actually founded for fairly noble reasons uh, college football back in the turn of 20th century was actually pretty dangerous and there were lots of student injuries there were there were student deaths and it was becoming such a dangerous thing that colleges were trying to drop the sport of football like from their college curriculum and, and good old Teddy, the guy who would do push-ups on the lawn of the White House, the dude who, you know, thought sports were an integral part of American life, uh, you know, helped found the NCAA to be a rulemaking discussion group to try and, you know, make these sports safe and... And, and do it right and, and have a structure rather than all these colleges just having their own football program. Now, fast forward to 1970, the NCAA is forming championship competitions for multiple sports and, importantly, regulating college football on TV. So that's what it became. And, you know, the reason I think this is so prevalent to me, college football is huge, especially in the South. Um, you know, there sure. there are probably more people who root for their own or, you know, just a college football team than there are that root for NFL teams. It is a colossal enterprise. It is a colossal financial venture.
1: I will I will just stay up front. Um, when I lived in Florida, I was part of or sorry, privy to no fewer than four different conversations in four completely different workplaces where men ranging from 10 to 30 years older than me all argued the point that they are more interested in watching collegiate football and collegiate basketball than professional that they find it more interesting that they follow the teams more that they buy more merchandise, that they are more invested in those college games than in the professional level.
0: Right, because especially if you went to the school in question, um, it's easier to form a personal bond. Um, what what I get weird on is the fact that I know several fans who did not actually go to the schools, um, but you know there are people who root for Michigan State that never went for uh, never went to michigan there are people who uh, uh support alabama and the red tide who never went to alabama but you know y'all don't even know he was a virgin until he's 28 now roll tide by and whole there are more people who can get a personal connection with a collegiate football team than with the local or the state uh, professional sports team but yeah, for some reason, maybe it's because the players are younger, maybe because maybe because, by the fact that it is collegiate, um, careers are shorter and it's easier to focus on a four-year career than a 17-year career. I don't know. College football is huge. And the NCAA... Um, you know, basically, since college football has been a thing, has been the the governing body and the regulatory committee to making it. And pretty much since people actually started paying attention, uh, the NCAA has been in lawsuits. Lawsuits and lawsuits and lawsuits abound. Um, the first one was in 1981, or at least the first one that was like, brought to actual charges. Um and I wanna clarify it's the NCAA versus Board of Regents for the University of Oklahoma, and the lawsuit was about overprice fixing and monopolizing college football TV rights. And the NCAA was found guilty. That's important. Um, you know, we see in nineteen seventy the NCAA gets all of the college football TV rights, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, but you know, they become the only thing that can control how college football is shown on TV. And 11 years later, they lose in a court of law over the issue of are they manipulating prices and are they you know, basically monopolizing all of the financial capital from college football? It
1: sounds to me like you guys are a couple of bookies.
0: Over the past few years, there have been a total of 13 other lawsuits, you know, ranging from uh, concussion protocol, which is something that is going to be another hate at another time. that uh, CTE and, and concussions as a whole are a problem that is ravaging most contact sports. Um, But the NCAA being so closely tied with football is no exception to that. They've also had lawsuits over women's sports inclusion, uh, academic fraud, and tampering. Um, And the big one, which isn't actually a lawsuit, but the gravity of it bears mention on this podcast, um, how the NCAA handled the Jerry Sandusky affair. For people who don't know who Jerry Sandusky was... Uh, He was a pedophile. He was a pedophile who, it just so happened, was also the head coach for the University of North Carolina. And after it came to light that he was a pedophile, um, it also came to light that UNC knew and basically kept things under the rug because he was their successful football coach. Um, The NCAA, at first, very publicly admonishes... Uh, UNC and make sure Sandusky is fired but then over the next couple of years basically bent their own rules to make sure UNC's um, uh, football program thrived and survived because UNC was one of the bigger money-making schools for the NCAA so to say it more concisely the NCAA found out that one of their schools head coach was an egregious uh pedophile and child molester and basically went oh no you oh bad 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 and waited for everything to blow over and then said okay let's let's fund money back into you let's get you back up where you need to be so you can make us money um
1: yeah. which is was that? yeah was that i thought that was penn
0: state no it was unc i i made really? i made sure to uh to research the whole Jerry Sandusky issue issue
1: yeah because I know I know he was because there was a big deal made about the fact that it was under he was assistant coach under Joe Paterno and there was this giant like and I and I'm not an expert on this by any means but I know Joe Joe Paterno as I understand is like one of the biggest like legendary college football coaches of all time. And Sandusky was uh, an assistant coach under him. And there was a big question of, like, what did Joe Paterno know? Like, did Joe – this guy was working under Joe Paterno. Did Paterno know about Sandusky? Did he know what was going on, what he was doing? And all signs seemed to suggest. Yes. But also um, nothing – I don't think anything was proven – Directly, but there was this big giant question of like they'd spent money on these coaches. Yeah, they had spent a lot of money, and these coaches made them money. So that's, I mean, that's that's a sidebar question there, but that's. That does give you a little bit more. That does give your argument a little more weight with just how much money these guys were actually making for these universities. Right. No, you're good. I'm. I literally just pulled up uh, a segment on the Jerry Sandusky thing just to make sure I've got my facts
0: right. Well, I want to make sure. But please. I gotta continue. make sure. Uh, I got mine right too. The initial research I did was yeah. all about Sandusky at UNC. You are correct about him also being involved with Penn State. Yeah, whatever school it was that was protect, <laughs> that was protecting a, a, a child molester. It became clear that they knew it. They covered it up. They got caught for covering it up, and. To put it in a nutshell, the NCAA pretended to give a shit and actually didn't. You know, this is this this is my my problem because I'm sure you could make an argument of, well, do you want to go back to the way things were where college football was a lot less safe? Do you want to go to? Do you want to abolish the NCAA and put in some sort of school by school um, regulatory board? Won't that cause problems? Won't that? cause massive issues and and maybe but you know my core argument is the ncaa hasn't been looking out for its players for probably close to 30 years um you know it's it's grown like a tumor into this greedy manipulative regulatory entity taking money out of young athletes pockets and you know well at the same time making this this preposterous, ludicrous claim of the importance of sports programs over anything else at the college level. The NCAA is the reason that the, you know, on average, the most lucrative career at any college is the head football coach. Yep. You know, there is a compelling argument to be made that it's one of the largest modern day loopholes of of legal slavery, because, again, the student athletes do not see a dime off of their actual, like, uh, athletic accomplishments. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's manipulative. It's holding these, these people's careers and dreams in the palm of their hand, while at the same time taking all the money they're earning in the other hand um, for financial compensation for likeness rights and, you know, infamy and... I don't know. College football is yeah. so damn popular that I don't think anything can really even change at this point as far as uh, you know immoral skeletons in the closet Um, but we've been watching this enough now that I think it's pretty it's not cruel of me to say that the NCAA doesn't have an actual purpose beyond um, giving money to the NCAA and as such it does not deserve to exist
1: I am I mean, I'm very much with you. <laughs> it's
0: college
1: athletics are, they're a really weird monster because um, I, I think very specifically about how uh, the, the legal slavery argument, which may sound dramatic to any lay people out here, you know, going through this uh, or listening to this statement who aren't really looking at the issue the reason why you can say make a statement like calling it legal slavery is a the universities as well as the ncaa make a huge profit off of the labor and work of these individuals and don't let it be twisted for these student athletes it is work they are regularly putting in daily practices amounting to a full-time job's work. That's on top of classes they're supposed to take. That's on top of everything else that they're supposed to maintain for their lives. Especially if you are a highly ranked collegiate athlete, yeah. your, your future kind of depends on you not only being successful in the game, but also staying healthy, also making sure that you can attend every single practice, Making sure that you remain uninjured because guess what happens if they get injured if they can't play anymore, that's your ass. There is no there are no protections for those athletes in the event that they start that they start in on a scholarship program uh, and then they lose their scholarship because of an injury. Mm-hmm. They lose their education. They lose that time, and they lose any opportunity for anything else. lose
0: yeah, they, they lose, they lose their livelihood. Um, and, you know, I can remember sitting at UCF and sitting in um, the sort of lowest level um, American government class that was available. And it was chock full of the student athletes because... The way colleges have gotten around balancing education with um, athleticism is to put athletes through the easiest courses, give them the easiest quote-unquote educational degree they can when everybody really tongue-in-cheek knows, okay, no, you're here to be a basketball player. No, you're here to be a football player. Um, And that's completely ass-backwards.
1: Well, and the other side of it is... um... So the NCAA has very strict restrictions on paying athletes or, or the student-athletes profiting in any direct right. way from their work as athletes. And there's, a, there's an issue with that because even though, like, on the surface, a lot of us can hear that and say, yes, no, of course. They're being paid in their scholarship money. They're being paid in the chance at an education. But when the... When, when the institution establishes that for you to maintain that scholarship, for you to exist in this space, you have to forsake your academic, your, your academic privileges. You have to forsake actual time to study, actual rest that you require, actual proper education in cases where universities let student-athletes slide through. Yeah you know you're you're robbing them of an education first and foremost and they have no cho- a lot of them have no choice but to allow their education to be robbed in order for them to even physically be there cuz they're not going to succeed on the teams if they give their academics and their athletics equal
0: measure well that's not even getting into the the fact that you know the carrot being dangled in front of people's noses is you know, the fame and fortune of a real athletic career, a real pro sports career. And that's not getting into the fact that, you know, ten percent of uh, all the college athletes in the world are actually going to make their respective um, pro leagues. That's not getting into the fa- into the amount of pro athletes who are in sports like, uh, you know, w- uh, women's volleyball or, or all the stuff that you see only in the Olympics and isn't actually a marketable sport anyway. But, you know, look at baseball, basketball, um, football, hockey. You know, 10% of the college athletes who are in these sports are actually going to make the league. And maybe another 10% are actually going to have, um, you know, star careers that give them the financial recompensation that they're that that everyone is looking for and that the ncaa is saying uh you know we're not going to pay you now but you're gonna make it and do this when a lot of them aren't going to make it and are going to be boned and there's
1: and there's this weird on there's this strange unspoken question there which is the ncaa can go to the universities and basically say uh okay for your student-athletes, you know, they have to abide by these restrictions in terms of them not profiting. They have to maintain such and such kind of grade point average. They need to be in good standing as far as behavioral issues. They need this, they need this, they need this, they need this. Uh, and then the universities are then put in the position where they say, okay, we have, in order for us to succeed as a football program or a basketball program or what have you, uh, we need to ensure that we, on paper, meet all of these requirements. Now what do you do when in order for your football players to succeed, they need to be practicing for eight hours, six to eight hours a day? Uh, well, okay, we can see about getting them slid through their academics what do you do when your culture treats these football players or these student athletes like on campus gods because yeah. the fact of the matter is they add all of this prestige and then once they once that prestige once or sorry once that uh, attitude towards them goes to their head and then they develop a toxic culture where where athletes treat other students horribly, where sexual assault claims become an issue, where claims of academic fraud become an issue, and then the university is then in a position where they say, okay, well, in order to meet with these NCAA restrictions, let's sweep a bunch of this stuff under the rug and let them slide through, because the fact of the matter is as long as these students keep successfully playing, that's more money in our pocket That and the thing is, that university getting more money, it's not that that's all you know a grind, a grinding awfulness. That's part of that, that can help out with further scholarships in the future, that can help pay for a lot of their academic uh investments, but it comes at this tremendous moral cost. And the NCAA as an entity can sit here and go, Well, Everything looks fine here. We have all the paperwork that says all these students are maintaining their grade point averages, and none of these students have any probationary issues or any, uh, or, or, or none of them have been breaking any rules. We don't see that any of them... Uh, have any sexual assault charges on campus. We can see everything's on the up and up. Look at us. We're the delightful NCAA and we make sure that everyone is doing things correctly. And it's a sham. It's a complete sham. And they know it's a sham. They created the very structure that forces the universities to either comply through negligence and deceit Uh, Or the universities need to take the moral stand and say, we will not abide by this. Our quarterback failed his chemistry final, and therefore he's not going to be playing. Or our point guard in the basketball game, we, we found out that at a party, he date raped someone, and we are expelling him. Like, if they take those stands, they don't get a profit from it.
0: Right, and...
1: The system doesn't exist for them to... The the system does not exist for them to act appropriately. It actively rewards that negligence and that refusal to do the right thing.
0: Right, and, you know, it's all just a big part of... Pro sports is modern-day gladiator arena culture. I I absolutely firmly believe that. And there is such a... um, a, a misappropriated sense of gravita and importance. And, and it's, it's shown through how money is spent on these things. It's shown through stadiums packed with red tide and, you know, millions of millions of dollars being spent. Um, and yeah, some of it's going to the school, but a good chunk of it is going to the NCAA and, he, there's the key and peel bit about um, like a teacher's draft. And if, if we treated, um, you know, t- uh if, if we treated education, like we treat pro sports, what that would look like. And it's such a great bit of satirical farce because like, I don't, I don't care how much money is going into the school when I can sit here and, and just know, just look and know that, the money could be so much better spent um, in other infrastructure of our society, uh, and the NCAA might not be the only like proponent of of why that is the way it is, but they are without a doubt one of the one of the key pillars to why that is. Yeah, i
1: I'll be honest with you, dude i I'm not angry that student athletics exists. I, I'm not even that kid who's like like I, I got through college on loans and academic scholarships. I am not upset that there are people who get into schools on the back of athletic scholarships. I'm not. I I think that the more ways we can make for more people to have higher education, the better. And I and I'm not upset that these programs exist. I am upset at the blatant lie of something like the NCAA existing as a regulatory agency because they're not they're not regulating shit.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not mad at the athletes. I'm not mad at the students. I'm not I'm not mad at that. I I am mad at these people that serve no greater function than to perpetuate this thing um, because that's how it's been. You know, um, there, there have been six presidents of the NCAA since 1951. So that's averaging every 10 years. You know, there's, there's a new guy. There are six people who have been the head of this body in the past um, 60 years. And that to me, looks a little shady. That to me looks a little cabalish. <laughs> and you know, I remember in a previous episode, the thing that gave me like the inspiration to talk about this and talk about this in the first place. Um, they've been in football, they've been in basketball. They weren't in women's sports until women's sports sued them. Pretty much for inclusionary rights, and that's how the NCAA got involved with, you know, women's sports of any kind. And now they're looking at esports, which we've gone into is you know the big booming hmm. financial new frontier uh, for entertainment. And I just I I. I I hear that the NCAA is starting to look over at esports and I, I cringe and I grit my teeth and I get so upset that these pricks are going to find another way to get even more money and take it out of the hands of people that deserve it more
1: auspicious.
0: So that's why I hate the NCAA. Alright, that's the NCAA. That's my thoughts on them. Let's go ahead and get to the last segment, The Relationship. Now, this week's, this episode's question uh, has come through the internet, um, and here is what we've got. Hey there, LHR. My question isn't about any physical relationships, but rather my emotional relationship with, well, everyone. How do I stop being envious of other people's success? I logged into Facebook for maybe two minutes, and after the first post of an old friend of mine with a new promotion, I already started feeling down on myself. It's not only Facebook, though. I have this problem in general where I am envious, jealous of people around me, usually people I know who are doing well. But I think it's rooted so deeply in me from when I was younger that I don't know how to fix it or how to work on it. From The Green-Eyed Monster. And I gotta say, I love a Bernstein Bears reference whenever I can get it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Andrew, don't read any of their <laughs> new books. They're they're like weirdly evangelical now. Uh We live
0: in a tree Mama Papa Sister and Me Whew uh,
1: Okay, do you wanna start in for uh Green Eyed Monster um, here or shall happen, I? Man. Okay, so Green Eyed Monster. Uh can I can can I call you Greenie? Um <laughs> you didn't answer. Okay, so this is a pretty funky way to phrase your question. Because it sounds like your issue is not actually with the relationship you have with any of these other people. Uh, it seems like your relationships with these people are emphasizing an innate trait to yourself. So I will, I will state up front uh, that I highly recommend uh, therapy. Counseling, in general, to get that kind of self-examination. I, I will I will put that out front. That is the very best thing you can possibly do. The second best thing you can do is to, when you think about envy, specifically, as it pertains to people you know, people you don't know maybe that well. You know, you talk about looking at this person through a Facebook post, and, you know, you're You're jealous of a promotion. You say that you feel down on yourself. That suggests to me that you see someone else's success and you are formulating this comparison between where they are and where you are. Now, you don't say if this person is in your field. You don't say how long they have been at this particular job versus how long you've been at your particular job. You don't give us that context but i will say to you that jealousy pretty much always comes from a sense of insecurity in oneself uh sometimes that insecurity is born out of some uh personal experience in your past you say that you felt this way since you were young um, or since you were younger, um, I don't know. Like it's, I I know that it's fairly common for people who grow up in situations where they uh, have particularly critical or narcissistic or uh, or just where, where they have parents who manifest their own insecurities in a teardown fashion to feel an intense degree of insecurity in and sure. of themselves. It's pretty common. Uh, and one way that that insecurity can often manifest is in taking other people's experiences and running with them like there is an unequivocal comparison right there. Like, okay, this other person who should be... At my level, they're in this one particular way not. They are above me in a way that I'm perceiving, and that causes me an internalized depression. And in those moments, it might help you to actually just sit down with that feeling and interrogate it. I know know that's uncomfortable, especially if you're actively feeling down on yourself, but look at their situation. Look Look at the situation of one of those people who you're jealous of and think, what is it that they have that I want? why does it bother me that they have it and yeah. i don't you
0: know i want to i want to say um something i i want you to really analyze um mr or or mrs um monster i think you might be looking at one metric of success and possibly ignoring others You know, you, you talk about seeing somebody got a promotion. So you are looking at somebody in the context of career and work, and that's really not the only thing, or at least it shouldn't be the only thing that gets somebody through the day to day life. That's not the only, that's not the only metric of success, um, that there is, you know, I want to say, I, I very much understand where you're coming from, um, you know, my career being in production, uh, I was an intern for one of the bigger um, stu- TV companies in Orlando. Um, and there's a intern-only Facebook group, and every once in a while, there we, we are called by our old coordinator to list where we are and basically, you know, give a, a career update. And there are people who are doing very well, and there are people who are maybe not doing so well. Um, you know, but There is emotion. There is, there is personal relationship. There is, there, there are so many other things that you can look into yourself and check in on that maybe you're not. And maybe that would help you realize um, that you don't need to compare yourself to these other people in such a direct manner or by this only thing um and i do want to say there i I agree with alex about um you know looking into therapy and i want to go ahead and say there is absolutely nothing wrong with doing so therapy can be a very scary thing for a lot of people but i think it is also more often than not an incredibly helpful incredibly um incredibly beneficial experience
1: yeah, I mean, i I've had, I have had two counselors in my life, uh, and it's funny because I'm in the process of seeing a counselor right now, and I'm in I'm in an awkward situation where my employment, thankfully, is able to cover my costs for a certain number of counseling sessions, and I'm coming in at the end of those covered costs, and I have my I have my last session with this particular counselor, uh, next week, but at my last session with her, I told her, I have a lot of anxiety about stopping counseling and she, you know, like a good counselor asked me a bunch of questions about that and wanted to know. And and the thing that I kind of kept coming back to was my life feels better when I have regular counseling, when I sit down with somebody once a month for an hour, and they ask me some deep questions that that works for me, it does me a lot of good. Uh, so if you have the ability to do that, and I understand if you don't, I, no shame there, money's a factor. I, I'm very privileged to have an employer who's willing to give me that like, willing to pay for the certain number of sessions that I have and do so in a confidential manner, uh, where I don't feel like I. Where no one no one at my place of employment who I don't want to know that I'm getting counseling knows I'm getting counseling, like I'm very privileged to have that and i and I honor that, and I understand that you might not, and that's okay, but if that is available to you, I highly recommend taking advantage
0: of it, yeah, absolutely um, you know, I think you say that this has been a deep-seated issue and this is something that you've been that's, that's been happening to you for a while um, I think definitely the best way to combat that, if it is your desire to combat that, I think it's in your best interest to, is to talk to somebody professionally about it um, in the day-to-day uh, you know, going on Facebook and having, and, and it bringing you down to have gone on Facebook and to read this thing. There's something to be said for, uh, you know, taking healthy breaks from social media. Um, I know several people who have let go of Facebook in particular for various reasons, and maybe um, taking a break from it could help you in this instance. Um, And also I just want to like remind you it's never too late. If, if maybe the reason you are looking at people and feeling bad about where they are in their career versus where you are specifically, um, maybe that has to do with you not liking where you are in your career. It's never too late to make a change and it's never too late to um, really come into your own. there are There are several examples I could list off mainly um, in the arts and in acting, but my, my point is, um, you know no matter how old you are, maybe you make a change and you absolutely can do that. Um, And that's my other piece of advice for you.
1: And I'm going to close out with one more thing. Uh, And this is, this is a piece of practical advice. This is something that I want to ask you to try because it has been weirdly successful for me. And Andrew, I'm sorry. This is about to sound crunchy as hell. (laughs) Uh, So, Maybe not. Maybe it's not super crunchy, but it's crunchy by, I am you know, my my, standards, my nihilistic shitty standards. So, um, every time you encounter, well, le- let, me- let me tell you this. I'm a writer. Uh, I follow writers. A lot of my friends are writers. I am a writer who is currently in swabs of large projects. I'm not submitting, like I probably should. Uh, a lot of that is the fact that I'm working on one big project, and a lot of that is it's terrifying and time-consuming and mentally exhausting. And that's something I need to own. That's a separate issue. But I follow my friends and I follow people I admire. You know, whether it's on Twitter or even just you know they they message me their stuff. Like I've got friends who are publishing in really interesting, great places, and. I am not going to tell you that I don't have an instinct to feel jealousy at that, you know? I've got I've got a very good friend right now who just got his first book deal and dude is my age and I he I heard that and there and in the mix of emotions there I felt some degree of jealousy. And the practical advice I give you, this is the thing that I have chosen to do when the people in my life are having professional successes that I want, is before I react, before I have time to think about it, the first thing I do is I congratulate them. And I tell them that I'm proud of them. Every time one of my friends gets a book review published, gets a journal article published, gets a story or a poem published. I share that shit everywhere. I put it out there and I tell them, I'm proud of you. Every time I see it, I'm like, I am so proud of you. Hey, everybody, look at what my friend did. When, when they tell me this stuff in person, when they have successes beyond me in person, you know, I give them a hug and I tell them, I am so proud of you. You did such a good job. You deserve this. And I don't know what it is. But the fact that I put that forward verbally, that I verbalized to them, I am proud of you. You are successful. I don't even think to myself that often anymore, hey, I wish that I had your success. Hey, I'm jealous of you. Because there's something about just audibly vocalizing that I'm proud of them, that makes me it turns me into the person who thinks that first. Because I'm the person who does that action consistently, because I'm so supportive. So when you when your Facebook friend has a promotion, instead of going, I want a promotion, I'm sad about that. Before you do that, before like if you end up having that thought, okay. But before you have that thought, I want you to open up that Facebook post and type underneath it. Congratulations, I'm so proud of you. When you're out with people and they tell you, I just got engaged, uh, I just bought a house, I finally fixed my relationship with my parents, I. whatever it is, whatever successes they have, whatever good news they have, instead of. if you end up feeling bad about yourself afterwards, okay, but before you give yourself time to feel bad, give yourself the time to. And the acumen to tell them, congratulations, I'm so proud of you. I don't know what it is. I, it's, there's something about that action that, for me, has completely changed so much of my view about it. And I feel, I'm not going to say it's 100% better, but I feel better, way better than I did before about it. So that is a piece of practical advice. That is a challenge I pose to you, Green-Eyed Monster next time you run into And
0: I don't this. think that was crunchy at all. I thought that was wonderful.
1: <laughs> oh, you're a sweetheart. Well, so are. there you go,
0: Greeny. Um, you know, I think we've given you some ideas of ways you can combat this issue, both uh, internally and externally. Um, you know, I really hope it helps. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll be checking in on you to see um, how you're doing in a, in, in a while. And if... Uh, you know, if if you can help change your worldview a little bit. Um, so that's been us. That's been our show. That's been love hate relationship just a reminder if uh, you have a relationship problem with uh you know a loved one friend co-worker uh you know we just kind of did one that was a relationship with yourself and i'm going to count that um if you have a question for us please send them in you can send them to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com and we promise we'll read them
1: you can subscribe to us on itunes google play stitcher spotify youtube or even TuneIn radio you can also see our website at lovehaterelationship.net. You can submit your questions there as well as just kind of check out all our stuff in one place. Uh, and you can tweet us at LHRPOD, that's L-H-R-P-O-D, with your questions and follow us there to keep up with new episodes.
0: That's right. If you want to follow us personally, I'm Andy Boel. You can follow me at Twitter at jovocop2113.
1: And I'm at A underscore X underscore R U I Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh as always, everyone, thank you so much for listening. And once again, as always, please tell your enemies.